Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is an updated version of episode 104 of Yoga Land. On this episode, I talk with Julia Lowry Henderson, the producer for the new ESPN 30 for 30 podcast that focuses on Bikram Chaudhry. Bikram is the well-known founder of his own method of yoga that consists of 26 poses and two breathing exercises done in a very specific order in a carpeted room heated to 105 degrees. He founded his first successful yoga studio in Beverly Hills in 1973. From there, he quickly rose to fame as yoga guru to the stars. Within years of arriving in the U.S., he had appeared on The Tonight Show, on Merv Griffin, and he could count people like Shirley MacLaine, Raquel Welch, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as just a handful of his students. But over the past several years, Bikram has been accused by six women of sexual assault, and by his own lawyer, Mickey Jaffa Bowden, of wrongful termination and sexual harassment. In her podcast, Lowry Henderson traces Bikram's extreme rise to power. She interviews several of the female students and employees who press charges for sexual assault. And finally, she tracks him down now in Mexico. You can subscribe by going to 30for30.com slash Bikram, or you can subscribe on iTunes and listen there. Quick side note, you may have noticed that this podcast went up previously and I quickly had to take it down. The backstory is long and I've really wrestled with, with how to talk about it. I don't think it's, it's worth going into all of the details. I don't want to create any unnecessary drama and detract from the interview and all the work that everyone's done. I'll just say that what needed to happen was I needed to remove the section from this interview where Julia talked about Bikram's early years in Calcutta and Japan. And you can hear her talk about this part of Bikram's history on her own podcast. I hope you enjoy this interview where I got to ask Julia just about every question I've ever wanted to ask about this topic. She was a Bikram student years ago and managed a studio. So she has a really interesting perspective, having been both an insider and a skillful journalist. I think she did an amazing job with this series. I think it's a topic that's incredibly important. And that's why I decided to put the interview back up. So Julia, before we start talking about the podcast series, I would love to know more about you and what brought you to to land on this project. Yeah, I mean, the thing that originally brought me to this project was the fact that I had been really involved in the Bikram world for a long time. And I hadn't been for a number of years, but kind of that involvement had intrigued me and and made this whole kind of downfall and really public sort of like very public fall from grace like intrigued me and it made me understand that it was probably far more complicated for everyone involved than maybe it was coming off as and so when I was hired by ESPN to work on this 30 for 30 audio documentary endeavor it just seemed to me like a perfect fit. It was, you know, I came in my very first day pitching this, even though in some respects, yoga is a little bit outside the purview of down the middle, straight ahead ESPN sports. I felt there was enough overlap and that there were a lot of themes and issues in play in the story that are really universal. And that would be 
would be really fascinating to an ESPN audience and to a larger audience. I think part of what we're trying to do with 30 for 30 is, you know, is bring sports stories to audiences bigger than just traditional sports audiences. And it just felt like to me, you know, 30 for 30 is at its best when it's taking a story and putting it in a new light, putting it in some sort of cultural or historical context that, you know, makes whole new layers of it pop into view and makes it, you know, more complicated or more interesting or just, you know, different than how we'd seen it before. And this to me felt like a perfect way to do that. Yeah, it's really such a multifaceted, multi-layered story. And I I haven't listened to the last episode yet, so I don't know how you guys wrapped it up. But when I, before this interview, you know, I Googled to kind of check in on the, the lawsuits that have been filed against him. And it was even more complex than I knew. And like working at Yoga Journal for years, I was always kind of tangentially paying attention to Bikram. I, I think I mentioned to you in an email, we were It was our mandate not to cover him in the magazine because our editor-in-chief just didn't agree with the way he spoke and things like that. So I wasn't completely on top of all the ins and outs, but certainly when the lawsuits were filed, I knew about them. I knew about the allegations of sexual misconduct. I didn't know about the woman who was his lawyer who filed for wrongful termination because it sounds like Mm -hmm. anyway. So... Yes, like such a multi-layered story. How long did it take you to to do the whole project from start to finish? It has taken me, I've been at this for just over a year and a half. So, you know, end of September, beginning of October 2016 until May of 2018. And it's been, it's, you know, it feels like sometimes I say that amount of time and it feels like forever. Yeah. I was working before this at a show that produced every week. So, you know, turn things around really quickly. That said, this year and a half has been, it's been like a sprint the entire time. Like this is a huge universe of people I've wanted to and needed to talk to as many of them as possible and and who are willing to, and even just understanding him and all that legal stuff and his whole, you know, it's it's been a very busy year. The year and a half has flown. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so from the podcast, I learned that the first studio he opened in the U.S. was in San Francisco, but he realized that that just, I mean, it seems, and then he wisely opened his studio in Beverly Hills shortly thereafter. So it does also seem like he very shrewdly positioned himself within Hollywood and that that helped him a lot. I mean, how how much do you think that helped him early on, both in just like, gaining notoriety, but also in terms of running his business. Like, uh, yeah, I just wonder how much of this he did himself and how much he just was really in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people. I think it's a lot. It's a lot of the latter. I mean, I don't think it can be understated how much he was in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people. I mean, I think in terms of not only the ways in which they helped him become a name, I mean, at that point, it really did take in in this country, being the teacher or the guru of a celebrity of some level to, you know, to have any sort of like a name that would appear in a headline attached to the practice of, of yoga, you know, I mean, 
he got to go on the tonight show within like a year of landing in california and, and that was a claim that then he could hold on to forever then it feels like you're watching a lot of other you know whether they're american born or not but teachers and gurus try to recreate what he's done right to try to get their own little celebrity clientele and like force their way into the yoga world that way but it also i mean i do think that the people he was surrounded with helped the success of his business i mean i do think that you know while i take everything he says with a grain of salt and know that there's some exaggeration baked in i do believe not only from the way he talks about her but the way other people that were there do that shirley mcclain was a not only a friend, but a huge influence on him and, and mentor. I think he did take things she said seriously. I think she gave a lot of advice, maybe solicited and unsolicited, and had a lot of opinions and set him up with, you know, her lawyer, her, you know, I think she, mm-hmm. him, and then, you know, he also was connected at that time. And actually, from that time forward, I guess is the proper way to say it with a woman named Anne Marie Benstrom, who, you know, in the 80s, went on to help Suzanne Summers launch the Thighmaster and herself had been the first director of the, you know, famous and famously expensive and exclusive Golden Door Spa. And then the Ashram, which was very, was just a very expensive weight loss retreat that mostly celebrities did. It's impossible to understate the importance of especially those two women and what they would have known and their business and marketing minds and the contacts that they would have had, you know, in their Rolodexes that they shared with him in terms of him launching himself and becoming the success he did. That early time, like when he was teaching in Hollywood, I've looked at that book, that first book that he did, and it all just looks very sweet and kind of almost like idyllic. Do you think his he was more emotionally regulated, softer, kinder during that time and like as he gained power just the worst and worst parts of his personality came out or do you think people just didn't notice because he didn't have power i think it's a combination i will say i do believe people who still themselves believe that the person they knew then was had compassion and was genuine and was it a good teacher and wanted to help people? I believe that he, you know, he, there must have been something about him that made them believe those things to a point where, you know, decades later, they still have those beliefs and hold on to those beliefs. Wow. I think he definitely got worse over time. I think that there is a bit, though, I, you know, there is a bit of just not recognizing it, I think, just because of the time and the place. I think that he got away with a lot because he was catering to a celebrity clientele and he was only attracting the people from that clientele who wanted the thing he had to offer, who wanted to have their yoga teacher, you know, for lack of a better word, kick their ass. You know, they wanted to be beaten up. They wanted his tough love. You yeah. know, he was the right thing for us, you know, a, a subset of the celebrity population that feels like everything else 
that's happening around is so image-based and, and maybe surface and fake and who deal with, you know, really weird, complicated issues surrounding like being lonely and having fame and, and privilege. And, and I think, you know, the, the people that wanted someone in their life who was going to be honest and the way to identify honesty for them was cruelty (laughs) because why he, you know, who would be cruel just to be cruel. You're being cruel to be honest, to help you, you know, like there's a weird Mm -hmm. psychology that that allowed him to kind of be wicked and to have no, no eyebrows raised about it. You know, I've had this conversation with people that have been around him for a bit who, you know, want to get into like a conversation about political correctness, which I don't necessarily always, I don't find that that useful, except I, I will say that things were different. People were allowed to cross lines without any pushback or repercussion a decade ago, two decades ago, certainly three to four decades ago. And I I do think that that's, that was a factor in terms of it being seen as like a novelty act rather than like a problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like part of a shtick almost. Some of yeah. it, some of it. And then the other part, like like you said, these people were accustomed to people wanting things from them and being kind to them and, you know, kissing up to them only because they wanted things. So in a way, it's almost like they probably, quote unquote, trusted him because he told it like it is. That's a really fascinating insight. I had not thought of that at all. Like the one thing that I thought of when I was listening to the podcast is because I feel like he's was it Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who he said, best basketball player, worst yoga student. And I think Shirley MacLaine laughed. It's like the bluster that Bikram naturally kind of had that being such a blowhard and like always promoting who himself and the people he knew that would have seemed very normal in those circles. Like that wouldn't have that wouldn't have seemed exaggerated in a way (laughs) because they all were really important people. And I thought that was really interesting, too. I mean, it's just so wild just the whole story is so wild. I know. I mean, I can't even, I mean, Raquel Welch, you know, doesn't want to talk about it or him, but she fascinates me because he notoriously would in interviews insult her publicly in like the most humiliating of terms. I mean, he constantly talked about her cottage cheese thighs and what a problem she had and how he had helped her. It was like his shtick, his go-to line in in interviews. And she never wavered from him. You know, I mean, and she just, she stuck with him. He was still her teacher. Like, it just feels like, you know, and then she did, of course, she put out a book and a video that were basically his series. I think she might've added cow face back in she added something else in but it was like otherwise the same and they settled out of court and but it still didn't end their relationship they you know they went back to being friends and people saw her at you know people took class with her in the 90s oh that's funny but yeah, I mean, created this world where he could he gained so much power and his ego grew by being able to take down some of the like the most important cultural figures around him yeah it's just wild
I want to move ahead to his his teacher training program. So he started the studio in Beverly Hills in the 70s. He didn't start his teacher training program until the 90s. And that seemed to be like, once he started that program, it seemed like things really took off. He had two trainings a year, several hundred students in each. He was making millions of dollars a year. One fact that I read was by the early 2010s, he was, he had 600, there were 650 Bikram, Bikram studios. And these trainings sound pretty crazy. Did you, you didn't do a training, did you? No, I really wanted to and always thought I would. And then it just wasn't like in, it just wasn't in the cards for my particular position managing the studio I was managing. One of the people you interviewed mentioned that he had rules that they, but at this by this point, he was married to Rajashree, so it was the two of them. And that some of the rules sounded really eccentric, like he hated green, so people weren't, weren't allowed to have, wear green or have a green bag or anything. But you talk about the backbone of the training being very focused on, um, on basically suffering, that he would break people down so they could be rebuilt. He was very out in the open about this. He would say, you have to go through hell to get through heaven. And... As I was thinking about it, because part of me thinks like, God, who would subject themselves to that? But, you know, it sounds very familiar because it sounds kind of like military training. But military training has like an ultimate purpose, like everyone needs to work together as a troop. And there needs to be forever and ever a very clear hierarchy in order for everyone to survive. I mean, you are in a life or death situation there. Do you think that people had awareness of this or if they didn't like how did he how did he sell them on it how did he was it just was it just the fact that by that point he was powerful and that power gave him sort of privilege over these people or how did so many people buy into it I guess is what I'm asking to the first part of that I think that for him the sort of the military elements of the training were critical and crucial because he was trying to essentially, I think, do what the military is trying to do, you know, for himself. I think the the goal is that everyone feels like they're entered into the yoga family. Because of that, they feel a sense of honor and more importantly, a sense of loyalty and that that loyalty will maintain the the rules and the structure as he dictates them going forward, which means, you know, you're only going to do in your studios what he says. You're only going to open up studios if he says you can. Like, he's going to always be the king on the throne on top of all of this. Mm. That that was really, really important uh, and crucial to his success was sort of establishing that. I do think that there's something about the practice itself, right? Like Bikram is such an intense practice. It tends to really attract, I mean, it attracts all sorts of people, but it definitely attracts people with type A personalities. It attracts, you know, obsessive people, intense people. And the practice itself is really one of suffering. You know, it's a controlled suffering situation. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The heat is, yeah. The heat in and of itself is creates suffering. 
you know, you get kind of pre-trained because there were certain elements of that that really got amped up as the practice spread. The room got hotter, you know, the 105 thing became a thing. And this idea that you couldn't drink water until after the warm up, after eagle pose, when a teacher told you you could, that you weren't allowed to leave the room, no matter how sick you felt. Mm-hmm. All of the harshness of those rules in that practice, in that the atmosphere of the practice, I think breed an expectation that the training would be like that but times a thousand, you know, and I think that there was, it was actually kind of a small leap. And this was a population that was really primed for the notion of the training is going to break you down to build you back up. Mm -hmm. And and that was people went into those trainings believing that. And I think that that belief that, you know, I just need to trust the process He's just pushing my buttons. This is meant to break me. I'm going to come out of this rebuilt. Like, I will get through this. I think carried a lot of people through. And a lot of people wanted that. I mean, that it that kind of intensity was attractive mm-hmm. to a certain percentage of the population. Sure. I talk all the time on the podcast about how people come to yoga seeking something and and p- probably often feeling broken in some way and other methods haven't helped them. So it is kind of like once it starts helping you, you become very devoted to it. And it sounds like a lot of, well, I don't know this, but it would you say that many of the people who came to his trainings were, were pretty young? Yes. Yeah. Predominantly female and predominantly young. Yeah. So just starting out in life, trying to find a direction, finding a father figure, perhaps that was very clear and gave promised them like a pathway that would give them a career and give them purpose. I guess I I guess I do get it (laughs) sitting here saying I don't get it, but I guess I do get it. And you and I have also talked about a little bit that the price point was really high so that it was, you know, back then $10,000, nine weeks of your life. So presumably you did not have a job or you had to leave your job to do it. And so once you made that investment, walked through the doors, you weren't going to just say like, oh, no, I don't think I'm strong enough for this. You were going to stick it out. And that seems to be like a brilliant part of, of, again, putting himself in the power position. Yeah. I mean, he just had a unnatural ability to understand the lengths people would go to and the things they would allow themselves to be subjected to when you know 10 to 16 thousand dollars was on the line Mm. and that investment i mean it made it an investment it was a huge investment especially for young people and you know I think you just naturally got, you know, money is such a complicated thing for us. And especially for a young person, the shame of losing an amount of money that you probably never even actually had in your possession before, the the shame that would come with or just the, the feeling of failure and, de- and destruction that would come with, like not not making good on something that you had to in some cases, like beg your way into, you know, you yeah. had to convince 
everyone else in your life that this was the thing you were doing and you had to find the person that was going to help you find the $10,000 to get there. Often that meant, you know, depleting college funds or, you know, leaving college for some of these people. The sense of not being able to go back to the people that you love and respect the most in your life and say, I was wrong and I failed, kept a lot of people in a, in a place where they didn't feel safe, but they felt that they literally had no other option. I'm wondering, what was Rajashree's role in the teacher trainings? Was she kind of like the soft nurturing mother if people were completely freaking out? Yes, that's my impression. Um, you know, I think her role diminished over time or it just got, I think at the beginning she was, a, she was much more present, especially just by virtue of the fact that the trainings were held in Los Angeles at headquarters. So, you know, they had two children who were, you know, young, very young when training first started. So it was easier, I think, for Rajashree to be a mother to the kids and also be a part of training when it was in Los Angeles. But then it just also seems that their relationship was always coming apart at the seams and began to do so even more publicly with time. And so, you know, once training gets too big and headquarters can't facilitate it any longer and this innovation comes of doing them at hotels and resorts, Rajashree and Bikram start being at training less and less at the same time. And presumably partially related to like life back home and children. And part of that is, well, let's travel to do seminars on different time schedules. So one of us is always here at training type thing, but they were less and less there together. They were always, you know, both there at the beginning and Rajashree really was the one who would step out first and, you know, welcome everyone. And she did seem, you know, much kinder and softer. She was very quiet. You know, she rarely says anything. You know, she rarely reacts. People say she, you know, some people describe it as icy hmm. or you know, kind of eerily icy, but she's very, you know, she's very reserved and she knows how to bury things. But she definitely, she was definitely the softer, more nurturing one. And she definitely was there, you know, her just her existence was a complicating factor you know yeah. a lot of people couldn't believe or or were watching behaviors that were clearly crossing lines but couldn't see the lines being crossed because it just made no sense that he would cross those lines while he was married and everyone knew he was married and she was there you know so do you mean like the massaging him yeah. while he was sitting and teaching and things like that yeah so it's almost like her presence uh, gave him license in a way to do those things because people would never think that he would do that to her or that she would allow that. Right. It's like, you know, a lot of a lot of women that I talk to will actually describe it as, you know, like I just never thought it could be a a sexual thing cuz like why would it it couldn't be like a cheating thing like she's right there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. So, you know, even though it's sort of a strange set of circumstances, the physical attention he required and maybe foreign to most people that showed up at his training, going around and massaging, you know, our elders or our teachers isn't necessarily like a widespread, you know, 
American custom, but you know, he was the guru and he was asking for it as though it made sense. And his wife was right there in the room. So any weirdness that you're feeling is your own problem, right? It's your own, that's your own limitation, that's your own prejudice that you need to work through. Like, if you want to be a good student, go do what you Right, 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 right. Were you able to, I haven't heard the very last episode in the series. Did either of them speak to you for this? Rajashree did not. Which doesn't surprise me. I mean, one of the major hiccups here are all of the legal things. So essentially, a lot of the legal paperwork looks like their divorce is probably a sham. Oh my gosh, really? Not that they had like a loving relationship and not that they have any relationship anymore, but it does feel like when they finally divorced, you know, they, they filed a couple of weeks before the Mickey Jaffa Baden trial began, and then they settled right after the judgment came down. And a lot of it seems to have been on paper. It looks like she got everything pretty much except for the apartment in Hawaii. And, but in reality, you know, I know a lot of people that know her personally that love her, that will tell me that she was left with nothing after the divorce. So it does seem like, it seems like she's and her name is, you know, she was an officer and, in his business and, and, you know, USA yoga. And there was a lot of like fancy shenanigans and lying to try to separate those two entities. And, and she's on the line for things. And the kids' names are even, you know, on certain business entities and, and make them liable in certain respects. So, you know, I think she, she can't say anything about anything without probably painting herself into a box and a lot of trouble. Right. I did go to see Bikram in Mexico. Wow. He's not in the country, but he's pretty easy to track down, not only because he's still doing teacher trainings twice a year. So, you know, you know, 18 weeks out of the year, exactly where he is. His daughter is just on Instagram all day, every day, posting everything they do. And she spends quite a bit of time with him. So, you know, I've spent the last year and a half watching him flip between India and Dubai and Thailand and Mexico. So is he doing teacher trainings in all of these different countries? He's just not doing them in the U.S. anymore? Yes. So he had he had been in Thailand and that I don't know if, you know, he tends to only do them in one place for a certain period of time and then move on. He moved back to Mexico, I believe, in spring of last year, and he's currently teaching her leading a teacher training at this moment in Mexico. It's the third in Acapulco in a row. And he told me, I mean, he's been to Dubai a lot. I think he's trying to get something going in Dubai. He goes back to Calcutta. I know he has a home there uh, and he has family there. So he does go back to Calcutta, even though, you know, I don't think it was of all the places he was always traveling you know, before all this happened, I don't think it was Calcutta all that often. You know, I think the number of places he's able to go comfortably is is smaller than it was. The way the warrant is, it's a bench warrant. U.S. Marshals are not going to, you know, be dispatched to a country to go collect him. And extradition is highly unlikely. That said, there are countries that do have a are in a relationship with our country that it would become uncomfortable were he to... Uh, conduct business or do something really prominent there. 
you know, he probably couldn't go lead a teacher training in Europe at the moment. That would just be at that point to do something that flagrant in public, like probably their authorities would have to step in. But, you know, there are lots of places that he can completely fly under the radar and, and, and nothing can really legally touch him. So I just want to clarify so that I understand the the different suits that were brought up against him and then what was thrown out and what the warrant is for. So six women came forward alleging sexual misconduct, correct? And then and then if I understand correctly, the uh, the LA District Attorney's office didn't even press charges against Bikram for those transgressions. Is that correct? Exactly. That is correct. So the warrant is for the wrongful termination of Mickey Jaffa Bowden. Is that because he's still yeah. he hasn't paid he hasn't paid her the money that he owes her yeah. for winning that suit? Yeah. Oh so God. basically, the six women came forward. The L.A. PD didn't really do anything, and the district attorney did not press charges in any of the cases. So they started pursuing you know, civil lawsuits, which was really the only legal option left to them to try to force some sort of reckoning. At the same time, in or concurrently with that, uh, Bikram had fired Mickey Jaffa Bowden and she sued him. And she sued him for wrongful termination and sexual harassment. She ended up getting into court a couple of just right before Sarah Bond's trial was set to start. And that ended up delaying Sarah Bond's trial, who was, you know, the first woman who actually stepped forward with sexual assault allegations. And she won a huge settlement. And I think a probably a somewhat complicated settlement. You know, I think it really does feel like the jury saw this as their opportunity to to punish this guy for all the things he had done mm. it was like 6.8 million dollars all told and Bikram didn't pay it in the interim his the CEO he had hired Petra Stark also sued him for a wrongful termination and a woman by the name of Sharon Clerken who had worked for him for years at headquarters and was way up in the inner circle sued him for wrongful termination and discrimination. She had essentially been fired for an interracial marriage and for being pregnant. Oh, my God. So those three suits are kind of actually the ones that brought Bikram down or to the point where he was facing a warrant. Um, the judge in the, the Mickey case gave him about a year and then stepped in and said, okay, you haven't done anything I'm demanding you turn over your cars, your, I think, royalties on your book and revenue from this, you know, what are they, at that point they estimated 700 studios. I don't think that number was accurate, but that was the number Bikram was throwing around. You know, the, the, all that stuff goes to Mickey now to try to make some good on this debt you owe her. The cars, you know, were nowhere to be found. They have thwarted several attempts like they'll hear that they're somewhere and they'll get there and then they won't be there. He's been caught trying to like ship them out of the, the country several times. I mean, it's like a, it's like a farce. <sighs> the company is basically worthless and you know, I don't think the book revenues are anything. So the judge then a few months later issued a bench warrant. At this point, judgments came down for Petra and for Sharon largely 
because Bikram wasn't showing up to court and wasn't filing paperwork. So the bench warrant is really tied to those issues of, you know, not paying down his the you know judgment against him and and being in like flagrant contempt of court by not you know even acknowledging when when things were due or when he was due to make appearances. He's like like a Teflon man, like things just slide right off of him. Uh huh. And now he's filed for bankruptcy, which makes him even more Tefloni. Mm. Because essentially, and I you know I didn't know a ton about bankruptcy until this happened, but I. I did talk to some experts and then I talked to actually the guy who is the acting CEO and CRO of Bikram Yoga Inc. and about five other entities while they're in bankruptcy. And bankruptcy eventually will absolve or resolve or wipe away whatever's on your debt sheet. There is a process in place where, you know, judge and lawyers and representatives for the people who are listed as creditors and uh, a trustee appointed by the court. And then whoever is acting as CRO or CEO, you know, they all deal and negotiate and try to find a way to resolve those debts. Some people just straight up liquidate what's there and just, you know, divide that pie no matter how small. There's not a lot to liquidate. And the CEO does not want to do that. He really wants to generate revenue with this brand and do it that way. But essentially, you know, bankruptcies don't go on all that long. It's kind of like it's a it's an expedited process that gets pushed along and you know, nothing can be outstanding at the end. So if if the bankruptcy is resolved, there will be no more creditors. And so, you know, if people get anything that feels close to what they ought to, you know, all of that remains to be seen. What happens with Jill Lawler remains to be seen. Jill is the only one of the six women who has not settled out of court with him. Is Jill the main uh, woman who told her story on the yeah. on episode four? OK, yeah. She's listed as a creditor. So her case, her legal case has stayed. And, you know, it just who knows what she'll get or what will happen over the course of this bankruptcy. But it looks like it really looks like he's just super Teflon. And the CEO isn't a lawyer. So I don't know that he's actually totally correct in saying this, but his logic makes sense. Um, you know, if everything gets resolved, because the bench warrant is related to that debt not being resolved, right. and some really like clerical things, uh, it stands to reckon that the warrant could be erased or could be become moot at the end of this. I mean, it probably would. So did Jill Lawler win her civil suit? No, she never got to go to court. Oh, okay. That's the thing that like makes me the saddest and most anxious watching like what happened with the bankruptcies because I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I might be overly pessimistic, but I just don't understand if she's listed as a creditor, but there's no judgment assessed to her because she never went to court and her case has stayed because he's in bankruptcy and she's listed in his bankruptcy filing. You know, it means she doesn't get to go to court. It's almost, it's very rare, um, if not impossible for a case that existed before a bankruptcy to exist after the bankruptcy. Um, it would have to be some really extenuating circumstances. So it just really, 
I look at this and it's just like, no matter how I look at it, I feel like not only is she probably going to get a really short end of a stick, but that opportunity to like take him into a courtroom and really go through one of these assault cases, like that form of justice will never happen. Like he will never have to face that. That's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. Like I have the women who have come forward. I, I just wonder about how they're doing and how you move on from something like that. Like when you don't get justice and I'm just wondering if they know each other or if they, uh, if you mentioned a woman named Liz Winfield, who was really an advocate for some of them, if, if she's helped them, like if they're, I don't know just how they're doing. They did not all know each other before they came forward. I believe, you know, uh, well, Jill and Jane Doe three knew each other. They were actually friends at training together who did not know that this was, you know, happening to the other one at the time. Well, I would believe that Sarah Bond and Larissa Anderson may have known each other, at least casually. They were both kind of big enough names um, and around headquarters enough, like over similar, you know, years that it's, you know, they potentially at least weren't strangers to each other. You know, I think probably most of the women had heard of Sarah Bond just because of her, you know, time in the competition circuit. But I don't know that any of them were deeply connected beforehand. Um, They have all met post this. And I know that Liz has been really important in terms of communicating with them, giving them a safe sounding board. I mean, she's, she's not only just concerned, you know, as a person, but, you know, being a physician's assistant and herself having experience inside her own family with traumas, like, Mm. She's actually really knows what she's talking about and knows how to put people in the direction of resources and and knows how to help people find help. I'm sure that all of them would say that they're grateful and that she played some piece in whatever healing they've done. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I imagine it's been really horribly, terribly hard. I mean, a lot of them were just kind of cast out by the community that didn't necessarily want to believe or accept what they were saying when they were saying it. Their civil cases went on for years and Bikram was horrible during them. I mean, the delay after delay after delay, just his lawyers were ruthless and, you know, evidence gathering and in questioning, uh, harassing and intimidating them, witnesses, you know, everyone they'd ever known in their lives. I mean, it just was what they went through before they settled was long and it was grueling and it was frustrating and it was really disheartening. You know, I think they're probably just now getting to the point where they feel like they're healing and rebuilding their lives because, you know, I think the last settlement of was, you know, last June, something like that. You know, it's, you mm-hmm. know, I think at the very least, they've all had a, at least a year to kind of ease back into a life that's not centered around a case against the person that assaulted them. I was really surprised a few minutes before we started talking. I, I Googled Bikram's Yoga College of India just to see I assumed that there that people are still teaching the series, that you know there are still hot yoga studios. We know that, but I I, I specifically googled with Bikram's name to see if people, and sure enough, up popped many studios that still exist 
with his name attached to them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's hard to summarize, but I'm just wondering what has happened within the community in terms of like, are there different factions or is it, does it seem like it's a dying, dying system? It seems really complicated. And at times it feels a little bit chaotic looking at it. Um, More than one person inside of it described it to me as kind of the wild west. Like right now it, it was a system and a community in which there were such tight confines, right? You could only be a Bikram studio. That meant only teachers that had been certified by Bikram. And that meant only his 90 minute class with his dialogue. And now, you know, all bets are off and people are, studio owners are really, have been struggling the last few years to weather the storm, not only of his downfall and what that does to the name, but of, just a kind of, you know, the natural ebb and flow of the industry and, you know, corporate competitors and, you know, the introduction and obsession with things like class pass as a way to, you know, find and consume exercise. Mm -hmm. As you know, Bikram yoga studio owners are essentially small business owners. They were never part of a formal franchise. They never had that corporate backing or support. And so, you know, They're really mom and pop shops trying to, you know, keep afloat in an economy that for a lot of reasons is not really friendly to them right now. Right. So what you see are, you know, there's been a a big move towards including 60 minute classes, which is something I mean, that was talked about for a while. People wanted options. You know, 90 minutes is a lot to ask of your students. And there are a lot of people who need and want an exercise option that, you know, fits with their lunch break mm-hmm. or, you know, work. So you see the 60 minute version, you see people diversifying and seeing what else can we do in a hot studio? Let's do hot vinyasa. Let's do hot Pilates. Let's do hot hit. Let's do hot anything. And right now there's no regulation to any of that. I mean, even Bikram 90 or the classic 26 and two, you do know what that is. You know which mm-hmm. sequence of 20 postures and two breathing exercises that's going to be. 60-minute Bikram doesn't mean anything yet. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different version. So people, you know, are willing to share and sort of open source. And, you know, maybe at some point there will come some unity around what that means. But right now, it's kind of whatever anyone wants it to be, which is, I think, empowering in one sense, but also scary in the other sense, because I, the biggest fear of everyone in this world was always brand dilution. Right, right, right. And that's sort of like the ultimate brand dilution. But they're trying, you know, everyone's just trying to get their doors open. I mean, there are studios that still have his name that offer 60-minute classes, even though, you know, he's still posting on social media that, you know, it's 90 minutes or nothing else. There seems to be a lot of, like, mixed messaging and, and cross-messaging you know, both between him and the people that he's left behind that are still doing this. You know, there is a diversification of teacher training options. There are a number of teacher training options at this point that don't involve him and hotels and nine weeks and $10,000. There's also an original hot yoga association, a woman in Pasadena, Val Sklar, who's owned her studio for 19 years at this point, has started this association as a way to try to foster a sense of community moving forward, but also to 
to at least lay the groundwork for a kind of regulation that never was there before, you know, that Bikram really did exist in such a bubble. You know, he didn't play. He did not play with the Yoga Alliance. (laughs) He made himself an outlaw and he loved being there. But I think Val and others understand that, you know, moving forward, at some point, you know, they're going to have to integrate with the rest of the universe. Mm -hmm. And how do you deem a teacher training program worthy? Like you have to have some standards now that it's not just his way or the highway and that it would be nice, you know, to have standards that line up with the yoga Alliance training standards so that, you know, as this industry on a whole probably faces greater regulation, you know, the government won't stay out of the yoga business entirely forever. You know, I think that there is an effort to try to, think that way in a weird long-term way in terms of being prepared to to make this more organized and more and and better run than it than it ever was under Bikram Chowdhury. You know, I'm amazed that things didn't completely fall apart because I imagine there was some amount of infighting while the suits were going on. You know, I'm, I'm I imagine that there are people who really supported the women bringing up the suits and then there were people who really supported Bikram. And then so it's it's amazing to me that it's even though even though it's chaotic, that it even still exists because there have been other systems that have just completely like Anusara as an example that just completely went went away when that all of these allegations came out against him and things fell apart. It's just crazy. I know. There's so much infighting. I mean, they did it really privately in a lot of ways you know like a lot of it happened on facebook and private groups but there was a lot of hard feelings and a lot of a lot of blaming and a lot of anger and resentment i mean there was just there was a lot that came up you know in the immediate wake of it and then in the years of dealing with the allegations and it is miraculous you know it, <laughs> or it, maybe it's not miraculous but it definitely that kind of a bombshell could have totally imploded imploded the community to a point where there was no such thing as, you know, existing or moving forward. Yeah. You haven't, you're in an interesting position being, being a journalist and, and also having previously been part of this community. So having like an insider's understanding, do you hope that people who currently practice and or go to teacher training with, with him right now, we'll listen to the podcast. I do. I really, really do. It's always important to me to be to be fair and to be honest and to be compassionate. And, you know, I really have tried, as I've reported this, to be all of those things to everyone. But I do feel like without passing any judgment or overstepping my bounds with anyone, you know, I I feel like there are a lot of people that have, have maintained a degree of being kind of shut off to the reality of the allegations that, you know, they still don't just want to go there. They don't necessarily want to accept it. They want to hold on to the, I wasn't there. So I don't know belief Mm -hmm. and whether or not, I guess hearing Jill's story changes their mind as to what happened or didn't happen. I just want them to hear her story. I feel like they've all, I don't know. I don't think that 
a lot of people have actually really stopped to listen right. to these women. I think that they've passed on the PDFs of the complaints, and I think that they've argued and put up defenses. And I, I think there's been all sorts of reactions to the women coming forward, but I don't think anyone's ever actually, or not anyone, I don't think a lot of people have stopped and really listened and listened with an open heart and an open mind. And, you know, I just, I find Jill so compelling because, and, and Janelle Leet as well. I mean, the two of them are so honest about the moments that they found themselves in and yeah. how they got there and they reacted to them and why. And I just, I do, I really hope that people in this community hear this. And I hope that, I don't know, I hope it does help them heal to hear it. Yeah. I, I think you did an amazing job. And, and I agree that those listening to those two women, I think having seen the headlines over the years, even as a woman who really cares about these things, they're just names, but you, you humanized them and they're, but by, by giving them this place to tell their story. So I just, I appreciate it so much and I'm sure many people will. And um, thank you so much for talking to me today. And thank you for the amazing reporting that you did. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a pleasure. Thanks. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave us an iTunes review. It helps others find the podcast as well. Thank you to Erica Rodefer Winters and Daniel Schaefer, who helped me produce this podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm.